0: Hey, everyone. Technically, you're getting two days in history today because we're running two episodes from the History Vault. You'll also hear two hosts, me and Tracy V. Wilson. Hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome to the day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's December 7th. Japan bombed the US naval base at Pearl Harbor on this day in 1941. This is what drew the United States into World War II, but its origins are from well, well before World War II began in Europe. We have to start with Japan. Japan is a tiny island nation, it just doesn't have a lot of land or natural resources. So in the early 20th century, Japan became really increasingly aggressive toward its neighbors in an attempt to get access to the resources that those neighbors had. This goal was to build a massive and very wealthy empire that spanned the Pacific and Asia, and at first a lot of this was focused on China— Active warfare between China and Japan began in 1937, but that followed years of Japanese aggression against China, including the occupation of Manchuria six years before. And this was not just a matter of an international dispute or of one nation trying to colonize another. China's treatment at the hands of the Japanese Imperial Army was absolutely brutal and destructive. It had led for calls to for the United States to intervene long before the United States became part of any of this. So the United States was trying not to get involved in the 1930s. After World War I, there was a lot of isolationism in the United States. But even so, after word spread of war crimes and atrocities being committed by Japan and Asia, there were more and more calls for the United States to do something. Rather than taking direct military action, the United States started implementing sanctions against Japan. This included a trade embargo that cut off most of Japan's access to things like oil, which Japan needed, especially in wartime. By December of 1941, after these sanctions had been in place for a while, the United States naval fleet was stationed at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And the general perception was this was a pretty safe place for the fleet to be. It was thousands of miles from the continent of United States and from Japan. So while the United States was expecting some kind of attack, the relations with Japan had reached that point, it definitely wasn't expecting that attack to happen at Pearl Harbor. So the naval base there was relatively undefended. Even though the war seemed increasingly likely, the military hadn't taken all that many steps to fortify the base or to expand their reconnaissance activities around Hawaii. All this meant that when the attack did happen at about 8 a.m. on December 7th, it came as a total surprise, and the results were absolutely devastating. In less than two hours, every battleship in Pearl Harbor was significantly damaged. Two of them were completely lost. More than 300 airplanes were damaged or destroyed, and more than 2,400 people were killed. More than 1,000 were wounded, and this included soldiers, sailors, and civilians. Although this was catastrophic, and it's often remembered as a total loss for the United States naval fleet, in reality, the United States naval strategy had evolved beyond the use of battleships. The battleships were the ships that were mostly in the harbor at Pearl Harbor. Instead, by this point, the United States was making extensive use of aircraft carriers, and the aircraft carrier fleet was not in Pearl Harbor that day. In fact, there were no aircraft carriers in Pearl Harbor on December 7th, so the aircraft carriers that at that point were so central to military strategy were not affected by the bombing. At this point, though, the United States population had been really divided in terms of whether to go to war. Public opinion had been gradually shifting over the previous few years, but there was still a huge strain of isolationism and a lot of people who just did not want the United States to become involved in another war at all. But after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, that completely changed, and the public and the government alike were united behind the idea of going to war against Japan. After the United States declared war on Japan in response to the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Germany and Italy declared war on the United States not long after. That brought the United States into World War II in both Europe and the Pacific. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. You can subscribe to the Stay in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in tomorrow for The Birth of a Woman Who Was Called
0: a King. Hello everybody, I'm Eves, and you're tuned in to This Day in History Class, a show where we travel back in time, one day at a time. The day was December 7th, 1963. Instant Replay debuted during the CBS broadcast of the Army-Navy football game in Philadelphia. In 1955, George Retzlaff, the producer for the broadcast Hockey Night in Canada, used a wet film or kinescope replay on a goal. The replay was not instant and he never used the process again, but it was a memorable moment in sports broadcasting. But in 1963, Tony Verna, a director at CBS, wanted to try out a new videotape instant replay system at the college football game between the Army Black Knights and the Navy Midshipmen. He wanted to be able to fill in lulls in action and to give viewers a better view of what was actually happening on the field. Eager to improve the at-home audience's viewing experience, Verna developed a system that used a videotape machine to produce an instant replay. The Army-Navy game was supposed to take place a week earlier, but it was postponed because of the assassination of U.S. President John F. Kennedy. Kennedy had been slated to attend the Army-Navy game. Verna was not sure whether the system would work during the game, and he didn't tell the CBS crew about his plans to try it out until the day of the game. The tape machine that Verna used was an Ampex VTR-1000. The instant replay device relied on tape decks that weighed around 1,200 pounds and were the size of refrigerators. It was housed in a truck. There were technical difficulties as he tried to get the right footage. Because Verna couldn't get a new roll of videotape, he had to use tape that had an episode of I Love Lucy on it. Some of the replay tests showed flashes of Lucille Ball's face. But in the fourth quarter, Army quarterback Carl Roly stitchway scored on a one-yard touchdown run. Seconds after the touchdown happened, Verna played the footage again. Announcer Lindsey Nelson, concerned that viewers would be confused by the replay, confirmed that Army had not actually scored again. The original tape that stored the footage has since been lost. The technology was prohibitively expensive for some schools, but more broadcasts began using instant replay, and slow motion and freeze frame were introduced. Instant replay also began to be used by sports officials for plays or calls that were dubious. This use of the technology has proven controversial at times. And different sports leagues have different rules on how replay can be used during a game. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Want to impress your internet crush? Show them your history smarts by sharing something you learned on the show. Don't forget to tag us at podcast, Or if you want to get a little more fancy, you can send us an email at, thisday at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you tomorrow, same place.